Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, it feels good to say those words again. So we said, just to be clear, we said we were going on hiatus and we wanted to sort of step back, sort of reset, take care of some other things. And the number of people that like refused to believe like the clear <laughs> words that we spoke was kind of amusing and slightly annoying, but mostly amusing. Yeah, we seem to have a lot of listeners that go for the worst case scenario, which is interesting. I know. They're like, what's the real reason? Like, did you guys have a big fight or whatever? It's like, no, it's exactly what we said. Like, we felt we needed to take a break. We wanted to sort of step back and think about how we're doing this and approaching it. And that's what we did. And now we are kind of back. I think that condition to seeing the headline of the news and assuming that there's a deeper story because of all the analysis, that that's what they wanted when we said we were taking a break too. Yes, we took a break. We are now back. We are not back on a weekly basis. It's not quite what it was before. We don't have a sponsor, so I can't torture you with sponsorship readings. <laughs> yeah. But we are back. And I think going forward, I think both of us got some stuff taken care of in our personal lives. You've started a new job. I've got a bunch of just built up stuff taken care of that I need to take care of. Again, don't assume the worse. There's nothing bad going on. We just had stuff to do. And I think now, particularly as topics come up that we're both super interested in talking about, that we will be back, not a weekly schedule, but on a relatively regular schedule. So make sure you have, you're subscribed to Exponent and you will see when new episodes come up and everything will be good. Yes. Sounds like a good strategy in general. Yes. So this was a good week, though, to get back at it, because <laughs> speaking of arguing and fights, if I might say so myself, we talked about what I wrote about this week. And I felt like a little bit of the old James Apple fanboy came out, if I might say so myself. I, I mean, you can take the I was going to do a take the boy out of Apple, but can't take the apple out of the boy. I don't know. That's not going to work exactly. But yeah, there was definitely a little bit in our discussion where I was like the 16 year old came back where I was back on the Internet. And like, are you really telling me Apple has a monopoly and charges monopoly prices? Like, are we really winding back to that argument way back when? And I, I don't know. Well, we'll get into it and we'll see whether I really am misapplying the arguments of my youth. <laughs> we will. And in fact, just to emphasize the point that there was nothing like nefarious about our taking a break, we've actually continued talking every week. We actually have a time set aside to talk about the articles that I'm working on. We just haven't been recording them. And, and now we are. Yes. So it's going to be interesting having another shot at this same discussion. I'm quite looking forward to it. So the reason to write about Apple this week and sort of antitrust issues in general was Apple was actually in front of the Supreme Court. And as I kind of laid out in my article, and definitely I don't think we're going to get too much into this specific point because it's kind of a legal argument. We're not lawyers. But the issue at hand is not whether Apple has committed antitrust violations or whether they're a monopoly. It's whether there is even standing for consumers to sue them about these questions. So it's fascinating because this is a case that actually was filed back in 2011, and it's now 2018. And technically speaking, the case hasn't even started yet. The question here is, can the case even go forward. So we're going to talk a lot about monopoly type things and antitrust type things in the context of Apple and the App Store specifically, but that's not what the case in front of the Supreme Court is about. Isn't it crazy? And doesn't it just show how, I mean, just stepping back for a second, how old structures and old systems that we've built trying to deal with modern technology. Can you think about how much has changed from a tech perspective, winding back to 2011? And we have just got to the point where we're going to figure out whether these people have standing to sue Apple for antitrust violations. It's crazy. Seven years. Well, I mean, to be fair, it is seven years to get to the Supreme Court. Like there was a district court case and there was a 
a case in the Court of Appeals. I think it might have been remanded once and went back to the Court of Appeals and the Court of Appeals and Bank. And now it's certiori. I'm going to leave you with that one all by yourself. So, I mean, there's a reason why it's been seven years. But I think your point, broadly taken, is correct. That 2011 date is interesting, which we'll get to in a moment. But broadly speaking, the question here is there is a Supreme Court precedent that the only folks that can sue for antitrust damages or an antitrust violation are a directly injured party or in the case of this, like a direct purchaser. So there is this case called Illinois Brick and the state of Illinois sued because there was alleging price fixing amongst a bunch of contract brick manufacturers, one of which was named Illinois Brick. And basically they're saying we are getting charged higher prices because they are colluding to have higher prices, which I believe was true. Like there wasn't a question of whether that was going on, but the question was, can Illinois sue for that? And the decision was that no, they can't. The ones that can sue are the ones that actually buy the bricks. And in that case, it was masonry contractors would buy the bricks from Illinois Brick Company. Then the masonry contractors would bid with general contractors to take care of the masonry aspects of a project. And it was those general contractors that would bid for projects with the state of Illinois. So if the state of Illinois was paying because of expensive bricks, it came in the fact that they were paying general contractors more than they should have, which came from the fact that general contractors are paying masonry contractors more than they should have, which came from the fact that masonry contractors are paying more for bricks than they should have. So to the extent Illinois was damaged, it was indirect damage. And the basic reasoning behind denying the state of Illinois the ability to seek damages is that effectively it'd almost be a civil version of double jeopardy where every person in the value chain could then go back and sue those folks. And that would be unreasonable. Right. And there had been a previous case called, I think, Hanover Shoe or something similar on those lines that basically said when it came to the defense of an antitrust violation that you couldn't do this sort of multi-step process. And it's saying, well, you can't do the same thing if you're seeking penalties either. Like it has to be judicious on both sides. It was actually a fairly contentious decision at the time, but it's a decision that has stood for going on 40 years. And, you know, Congress has had plenty of opportunities to change the specifics around this and they haven't. And generally speaking, there's a concept known as stare decisis, which is that if something has been decided, it's better to leave it as it's been decided. And if it should be changed, it's Congress's responsibility to change it, which is a doctrine that I certainly am generally in favor of. I mean, there's the reason we have a lawmaking branch as opposed to a law interpretation branch. That's sort of the controlling precedent. And in this case, neither side are challenging the precedent. No one has asked for the Supreme Court to throw it out, although it did come up in the Supreme Court discussion on Monday. But both are just asking to interpret in the context of Illinois BRIC, are consumers direct purchasers of apps from Apple, I should say. So the allegation is that Apple is acting anti-competitively with its leveraging of a 30% charge on apps. And I want to be super clear in my language that we're talking about apps here because later on, we're not necessarily going to talk about apps. So I just want to kind of highlight that right now. So the question is, who is being charged the 30%? Are consumers being charged it or are developers being charged it? And what the plaintiffs are saying is that we give our money to Apple. Apple then delivers the apps to us. We are the direct purchasers of the apps from Apple. And therefore, we have standing to sue Apple for damages. 
and Apple is quite obviously trying to position themselves differently in the value chain in the same way that the state of Illinois couldn't get at Illinois brick because there were people in the middle. Apple is obviously trying to say that that is the structure that they have where they are acting more as an agent for the app developers and the consumers are buying direct from the app developers and Apple's just acting as an agent on behalf of the app developers. Right. I mean, the language is a little like you can get the technical details about agents or whatnot, but that's the general idea is that Apple is saying that consumers don't buy from Apple. Apple doesn't like buy apps from developers and then hold them and sell them to consumers. Consumers buy apps from developers and then developers basically have to pay Apple 30% in exchange for Apple's assistance in distributing, whether it be you know handling the transaction itself, holding the apps, all those sorts of things that that's a payment from developers to Apple. And therefore, any damages that consumers face are indirect in that they're passed through from the developers to consumers. So the implication is if Apple wins this case, what they're saying is developers can absolutely sue us. So that's basically the argument. And what was so funny about this argument is that for reasons of convenience, it was basically assumed that Apple's a big bad monopoly. (laughs) I mean, they did it because that hasn't been determined yet. That would be determined in the lawsuit if we're able to proceed. But it was just funny to listen to the language because it was easier to say, when you're talking normally, don't say alleged, alleged, alleged. Like you just say like, here's the situation and who's being hurt. So the discussion was funny to read because it basically assumed that we all know Apple is a bad monopoly. Now, who are they actually hurting? Yeah, it was kind of crazy to me to read that language where Apple's just like, oh no, the ones that can sue us in this instance are the developers. And it was just- Right, but it came across like the ones we're screwing are the developers, not the consumers. Or no, it's like, we're screwing the consumers, but we're screwing them indirectly. So it's fine. (laughs) Yes, right. And just thinking about that, it's like, you guys are kind of setting yourself up for the next lawsuit the way you're arguing this, because I've seen some pretty pissed off developers about the way that the Apple ecosystem works. And you're basically teaming up the argument for them, aren't you? Right. That's a whole separate discussion. But I do think this question is interesting because it's true. Apple doesn't like buy apps from developers, then sell them to consumers. On the other hand, leaving aside just the fact that you're transacting with Apple, Apple really does kind of own the entire relationship. They have all the consumer data. They don't share that with developers. Really, it's sort of like developers are told, oh, someone bought an app from you and you kind of push it through a black box and it kind of pops out the other side. And there's very little coming back the other way. From a legal perspective, I personally feel that Apple is in the stronger position, that they will probably win this case. But from a sort of like practical perspective, it's kind of hard to argue with a straight face that this is any sort of meaningful contractual relationship or purchasing relationship between developers and end users. It's fun to drag this case law that was developed with physical goods and those relationships into the digital era. And like, on one hand, that argument about Apple's not buying apps from developers and then reselling it to consumers. That's very compelling. At the same time, your point just then about Apple completely abstracts away the end customer from the developer. So is there really a relationship between the developer and the customer? And if there's not, it must be between Apple and the consumer is also pretty compelling. And it's so interesting to see how the case law, the digital analog of the offline version from 20 or 40 years ago or whatever it was, it does doesn't quite map one to one and it's just going to be a judgment call as to which side of those two arguments is stronger. 
Right. You can't make it so that concrete bricks suddenly manifest themselves and are delivered to the customer in like the snap of a finger, right? right? Whereas because of digital goods and the fact they're infinitely replicable and there's zero distribution costs, all the sort of themes that we talk about, that is viable. It is viable for the consumer to not have an app and then to magically have an app that from a legal perspective came from the developer. And Apple says this very clearly in the developer language that we have no rights to the app. We don't own it. It's not our intellectual property. And now you know why they have that language in there. But at the same time, I think you see this more and more where the plain language of the law suddenly is not so plain anymore because it actually ended up depending on all these sort of physical characteristics of the things in question that when people wrote these laws or made these decisions, it would have never even occurred to them that there is even an issue there because how can you even imagine a world where items can be infinitely duplicable and instantly switch hands and transferred? It's crazy that these virtual things become so valuable. And the realization for me was in the games where you give the game away for free and you start buying the fashion items that kit out your character you were basically doing what was physical fashion virtually and people ascribe value to that. But literally that's nothing more than a few bits somewhere in a server and you're paying for that. It just doesn't translate at all. It's a less extreme version of that, but it's part way along that spectrum. And the old stuff just doesn't perfectly translate into the new. Yeah, I really like that analogy because when you think about buying like a dance in Fortnite or buying a different costume along those lines, the value that that drives in the consumer and the feeling it drives is absolutely the same thing as buying like a new shirt or buying a fashionable handbag or whatever it might be. Like it's touching the same pleasure spots. You know what I mean? Despite the fact the actual manifestation of it is totally different. And I think that gets at this sort of juxtaposition where, you know, if you think about it, Apple is clearly in the middle between developers and end users, right? So if you think about it from how it's actually experienced in real life, quite clearly they're in the middle. But from a technical perspective, they can absolutely possibly claim that they're not. Just as you can say that a handbag is obviously different than a dance in Fortnite. There's nothing remotely similar about them, but actually they are the same thing. But how do you make that actually the same thing, something that's legally actionable? Like it's a total new area that no one's really figured out. Yeah. Again, I think the thing that will come back to bite Apple, they might be able to claim they're one thing and not the other, but I don't think they'll be able to get away with claiming they're not both. And so if a developer takes this and starts to get a little bit pissed off at 30%, and I'm sure some developer somewhere is like, okay, this markup seems outrageous. This language that they've used may come back to haunt them a little bit. And that's what I kept thinking about when I read about this case. I do think it's interesting why developers haven't sued. I think there's certainly a fear of retribution. There is a sort of arbitrary nature at times in the app approval process. And can stuff be pushed down? Like, it's so opaque what happens in the app store. And the fear of sort of making Apple mad, it can literally break your business. And I think there's lots of questions about that issue. But as to why, despite all this, the developers are the ones, again, all alleged, to the extent there is a monopoly issue, or an we should say antitrust to be clear, there is an antitrust issue with this pricing. I do think it is developers that are bearing the cost, not consumers. And that comes back to some of the principles behind aggregation theory, where there's a tremendous abundance of apps, there's a tremendous abundance of things in the store that we already know has driven prices down massively relative to, say, what's been on the Mac or on the PC as far as software goes. And the reason is because what matters is the sort of demand side. And in a world where the demand side is more 
important the supply side, we would expect the supply side to sort of eat all the costs. Because to say that consumers are being injured here implies that they are paying artificially high prices. But I have a hard time believing that's the case in this sort of market. So that's kind of specific to the case. I think the interesting thing here is putting aside whether they violate the antitrust law or not. The interesting thing here, and going back to our conversation earlier this week, probably where we spent a bunch of our time, was actually whether Apple has a monopoly, whether they are positioned in the market such that they can force this on people. And what is the damage, if any, that is being done? Well, again, I want to be super clear in the terms. And to your point, we're drawing a line in this podcast here. And I probably should have done better to be super clear in the article that there's a line here. So part one, we talked about the specifics of this case, which is about apps and consumers and standing and those sorts of things. And we want to draw a bright line here where from now on, our discussion has nothing to do with the discussion that came before. We're going to talk about things like digital goods versus apps and not necessarily standing or any of those issues. So I just want to be super clear to the listener that there's not any confusion. We're now trying to transition. And I do think it's important to talk about antitrust specifically because there can be antitrust violations that aren't necessarily based on monopoly. And an example I would give is actually Apple itself. Apple was guilty of an antitrust violation with ebooks when they were convicted of colluding with publishers to fix the price of ebooks higher. And at the time, one of the things that I think a lot of people had a hard time understanding about that case is like, well, Amazon has a dominant share in eBooks. How can Apple be found guilty? Well, there are anti-competitive things you can do that actually don't depend on having a monopoly per se. So I think it is important to keep that in mind that these are two distinct things and Apple can behave anti-competitively in a legally problematic way without having a monopoly in whichever market you're discussing. And we'll get into market definition absolutely in a moment. It's important to keep that in mind as we discuss this. And the converse too, right? You can be a monopoly and not run afoul. It's only if you're a monopoly and behaving anti-competitively that you end up in trouble, correct? Exactly. And if you're a monopoly, like there's a lot more things you can't do. But if you're not a monopoly, there's still things you can't do, right? Like right. The list is smaller. But yeah, I think that's exactly right. So it's important to draw a distinction between the words monopoly and the words when it comes to antitrust. In some respects, this isn't a perfect case because one, the whole standing question, and two, the consumers are really talking about apps. And I think the question of, you know, you step back and think about the app store, the apps are just leaving aside questions of market share share and monopoly and all those sorts of things. It's a very sort of problematic setup. And the problematic setup is one, the only way to install apps on iOS devices through the app store. So Apple has total control Two, all apps in the app store that go through the approval process can only use Apple's purchase APIs. Now that can apply to buying the app itself in the store and it can apply to in-app purchase within the app. And Apple applies that rule, not just to apps themselves, but any of the content within the app, whether that be dances in Fortnite, whether that be bobbles in your game or virtual money, or whether that be things like eBooks. To go back to the eBook example, like if Amazon wants you to be able to buy a book in the Kindle app, they have to use Apple's in-app purchase. And you can see how those two things work together. By virtue of their control of all apps on the store, Apple is in a position to implement these rules, say you have to use their purchase, and they're super strict on it. Like you can't link out even within your app to a web page to buy something externally. And you know they're so strict. I've heard of situations where developers will link to a privacy policy and they want to link to their website to show the privacy policy. And Apple's reviewers will click through the privacy policy and realize, oh, now I can click on the logo on the top of the site, like any site setup generally is. 
and I can get the front page of the site and now I can subscribe on the site, they'll block the app. They say you can't run the app store because you are linking to an external payment process, even though it was actually totally intentional. So they're super, super strict and locked down about this. Yeah. So a couple of things on that. The first would be this relates to digital in-app goods and services. For example, if you download the Amazon app, you can buy things off Amazon that are physical or you can use Uber and you can summon an Uber and you don't have to use Apple's in-app purchases. It's only for the digital goods and services that are enhancing the application experience in one way or another, whether it's buying a book that you then read in the app or subscribing to Netflix that then unlocks movies in the app. It has to be that digital good experience. And I think that's just a little asterisk. And I think that drives it perhaps why Apple is doing this, because if they didn't have that restriction, what would happen is a developer would put the app available in the store for free, let people download it, and then create an in-app like, oh, you want to unlock, click here to do an in-app purchase. And I cut the 30% Apple tax out and I just get to keep it all myself. Now, let's back up the line because I think it's useful to draw an even finer distinction that will really help this conversation. And that is there's a number of things you can purchase on a phone. So number one, you can buy an app. Like you can go into the store and you pay money up front for an app. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is within an app, you could sort of unlock functionality within the app, whether the app does 10 things. And if you want to do 20 things, you have to pay for it to do more things. And that's using an in-app purchase API. And that API could be a one-time purchase or it could be a subscription purchase. Number three, and I think it's important to set these distinctions, is you're buying a digital good that has nothing to do with like the functionality app. And I I think the obvious example here is ebooks, but Netflix streaming would be another example. Any number of digital goods, Spotify, or just music stores, something along those lines. Any of those, you can buy something and you're downloading a digital good. It's the digital equivalent of buying an item on Amazon, but instead of getting shipped to your house, it's just sort of downloaded to your device. And I think it's really important to keep those separate because I think the debate about whether what Apple does is problematic varies based on which level of those things you're at. And I regret regret not being clear enough about this distinction. In my follow-up I posted on Wednesday, I was much clearer about this because I think there's different arguments that can be made that are more or less compelling based on sort of which level you are. Let's start with apps. And this is the one that probably makes me most positively inclined towards Apple because I was early to the smartphone market back in the late 90s. And I remember that it was the wild, wild west. You were downloading these files off websites. You had no idea what it was going to do. The market for apps on your smartphone was infinitesimally small. It was basically trying to replicate the PC experience on the smartphone, but you would download things directly. And it just felt like super shady in the wild, wild west. And the app store has completely changed things where it's a centralized place. Apple checks all the code, makes sure there's not dodgy stuff running. And that's one thing that they've done very well. So you can wander around the app store and download something. And you are not worried about whether what you're about to download is going to break your phone, is going to have some virus or some keystroke logger or something really nasty on it. And if it's a paid app, you click the little price and you click buy and it downloads onto your phone. The transaction is taken care of by Apple. 70% of the revenue gets sent to the developer. Apple keeps 30%. They deal with it. And this is how it all started. This is the quintessential way that it all began. And 
Honestly, like I feel pretty good about Apple taking 70-30, especially at the start. And we can argue about whether it's reasonable or not now, but I feel pretty good about them doing that because that started this all off and it has unlocked a massive economy of all these apps being built upon billions of mobile devices in a way where it's safe and easy for consumers to get at them and for developers to reach these people where previously they just wouldn't have been interested in the experience at all. I actually agree. I mean, all this stuff, like everything is always sort of a trade-off, right? And it makes me sort of fundamentally uncomfortable that there's no option. There is no competition sort of in the market to put apps on your phone. At the same time, I would say a few things, just sort of building on your point, but phrasing it in a way that I think might be helpful is first, Apple really did innovate with the App Store and they deserve some sort of return on that innovation, right? And the App Store was a tremendous breakthrough. And it's absolutely the case that all kinds of businesses have been built in the App Store that weren't possible previously to the benefit of developers and to the benefit of consumers who have access to all these new experiences, number one. Number two, there is a clear benefit that comes from a security perspective where having Apple sort of vet everything and having them sort of make sure that you feel confident installing stuff. And again, that benefit is not just from users knowing that their devices are safe, it benefits developers too, because increased confidence in users to download apps willy-nilly makes it more likely that your app is going to be downloaded. And I think back in the day, it's fading into history, but one of the many reasons why web apps took off in such a big way on the desktop is because people were scared to install apps, or they worked in like in enterprises where they were forbidden to install apps. It, why? Because it was absolutely a security sort of disaster. Like The openness of Windows was, in some respects, very good, but in other respects, it was terrible, particularly for people that, you know, it's not their job to sort of make sure they have a secure computing environment. And so in this case, when it comes to apps specifically, that makes me a little uncomfortable, but I can also really see the benefits that Apple is providing and the benefits that come from there being a lockdown one vendor sort of experience that does benefit everyone, even if it is a little shady that, you know, they've kind of decided we're the only ones that can do this. And our developers building apps is Apple entitled to that sort of thing just because they made the iPhone? Again, there's an argument to be had on either side, but I think it's totally reasonable in this case to say that Apple actually is justified in their approaches to that. Yeah, that kind of brings us to the second point, which is developers, there was some that want an upfront charge for price, but there's a bunch who are like, okay, you're in the app and I want to monetize the fact you're in the app. And games, the classic example is like, you can grind it out to get up the levels, but you know what? You're grinding and you're getting sick of grinding and you just want to cheat. Give me 99 cents and I'll up you a level or I'll give you an extra life or something. And that became a very popular model. You mentioned Fortnite. That's a great example. This is basically like you're in the app, something's happening. I mean, we can go beyond games. Like if you have downloaded a dating app and you want advanced functionality in the dating app, you pay a subscription and you get advanced features. And Tinder and OkCupid, I think... I don't know anything about this for the record. Uh, maybe this is more my department, but Tinder and OkCupid have done very well in this space. Like often in terms of top generating revenue in the app store, they're often doing very, very well. So this notion of, okay, we've got you in the app, maybe we gave you the app for free, and now you're in the app, you want something to enhance your experience in the app, and Apple's taking 30%. And again, 
I kind of fall down on the side. That's okay. In the same way that if it's okay for Apple to take 30% up front, I mean, otherwise you're gaming developers if you don't do 30% in-app to give all the apps away for free and just find ways of charging for an in-app experience, even when that's not appropriate. So from a consistency of user experience and where subscriptions or in-app purchases make sense, then resort to that. But maybe an upfront purchase is the right approach. Let developers choose and keep it consistent. Yeah, this is where it's definitely getting much more of a gray area for me. And maybe we come clear when we talk about the third category. But in this case, you there is an aspect where you're using Apple's APIs. Like particularly, I would think about an app where there's actually functionality of the app that is unlocked via sort of an in-app purchase. You can't really do that without Apple's help. Not sort of like, you know, with someone helping you, but you have to use Apple's APIs that are deeply connected into the system to undo that sort of thing. To say, well, you should be able to go outside to a website and have that tie back in into Apple's APIs on the phone and unlock functionality. Like it's getting a little into you're entitled to sort of Apple's innovation. You know what I mean? To make money. And I guess that's why even here, I think the arguments are much closer than they were in the previous one, but I'm still pretty sympathetic to saying this isn't necessarily problematic behavior. They are genuinely innovating. They're offering APIs for developers to make these apps possible, to make this unlocking ability possible, to make these things possible. And they are charging a price to be able to access them. But I think what might make this distinction maybe a little clearer is if we jump to the third one and then we can see to what extent it ties back. And the third one, which is like a service where you're kind of downloading content or a digital good that is external to the Apple store altogether. So this would be more like Netflix and you download the Netflix app, but you don't have an account and you want to sign up for account. If Netflix puts any reference to signing up and paying, they have to give Apple 30% or... Like you mentioned before, if they try and bounce someone out to their own sign-up flow to get around that, the app gets denied. So the way that this is manifested in the store has been you can download these apps to consume the goods that you've purchased elsewhere, but you can't make mention in the app or provide any purchase flow to buy that content within the app unless you're giving Apple that 30% cut. Netflix is a great example. I think Kindle is actually the killer example, in part not just because it's very distinct what we're talking about, but because this was where I think the App Store went sideways and where it went wrong. And it actually happened in 2011. It was originally the case that all Apple was charging for was the things we're talking about. They were charging for upfront purchases of app and they're taking 30% and using sort of their in-app purchase APIs, which came out, I think in 2009, and they're taking 30%. From 2008 on, the Kindle app was in the store and the Kindle app, I believe originally, I can't remember this specifically, but I think they might've had a web view where you click a button, it basically loads the store in the app. But if they didn't have that, at a minimum, they had a link said, if you want to buy books, go here. You hit the link, it opens up Safari, the Amazon webpage, and you could buy your books and switch back to your Kindle app and your books were there. And what happened in 2011 was Apple said, nope, no more. And Kindle was kind of the last one to give this up. As you can imagine, they're not going to just like kowtow for Apple, but Apple's like, you have to remove all references to an external website in your app. You can't even say to buy books, go to Amazon.com. There has to be zero reference, no linking. There certainly can't be a web view in the app. If you want to have anything that involves purchases in the app, 
we get 30%. End of story. And to my mind, I don't think it's even close. I think it's absolutely extremely problematic. Apple is providing no value to this sort of transaction. Apple didn't write the ebook. They're not hosting the ebook. They're not selling the ebook. They're not doing anything with the ebook at all. All they're doing is they happen to have made the device that displays the ebook, but there's nothing unique that Apple is contributing to this sort of ebook reading experience. And the only basis on which they are making these demands are because they can. Because going back to that there is legitimate reasons to have a single app store. There are legitimate reasons that Apple controls sort of the payment APIs on device, but there is no legitimate reason why you can't link to a web page. And again, maybe you say consumers don't want to pay a random person. Well, that's fine. The consumers can choose not to deal with someone that makes you go to a web page to buy a digital good. The problem I come here is Apple's not really competing here. There's no innovation from Apple that is making this possible. It is, in my mind, a clear example of Apple taking 30% because they can. Now, they don't take from Kindle. Because Kindle just presumes you will figure out to go to Amazon.com. That's great for Amazon because everyone knows what Amazon is. Everyone knows where Kindle comes from. It's even worse for Netflix because they know who Netflix is. They know where to go to sign up. It's not so great for the huge plethora of businesses that would like to build and aren't well-known brand names and are trying to sort of like build something up from scratch that their prospective customers have to know to go to a web page. They have to know what web page it is and have to figure out how to get there just because Apple basically is taking 30% because they can and no other real reason. Again, unsurprisingly, given the preview that you gave, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to Apple in this instance. Like if you agree that the 30% is fair in the first instance and then the 30% is well, maybe not fair, but justifiable in the first instance and then justifiable in the second one, it's very hard to create that arbitrary distinction between in-app purchases that are unlocking functionality of an app and in-app purchases for digital goods. Like I know you've used Amazon and books, but I could see a world in which if you let developers just send people out to a web view, they would actually altogether cut off in-app purchases from the second category. They would just send everybody out to web pages straight away. And the experience from a consumer perspective in that instance would be not great. And in fact, you could even see instances where the apps would all get downloaded for free. And the first thing you opened when you got inside an app is being bounced out to a web page where a developer is saying, yeah, for you to continue, please enter your credit card details here. And like that is one of the wonderful things about the in-app experience now on these devices is you don't get bounced out like that. But if you have these different tiers between the levels, you are creating incentives for developers to give people a lesser experience for them to get that 30% cut that Apple doesn't get. So first off, I would say that, frankly, in that middle category, I'm totally fine with that. I don't think it's a problem. But if there is a line between category two and three, it's increased app functionality, which by definition sort of depends on the underlying APIs of the phone versus digital content like downloading a music file or downloading a book, which depends on nothing about, I mean, obviously by definition, if it's playing on a phone, it depends on the phone, but it has nothing to do with sort of Apple's innovation. So I think there is a line that could be drawn. I personally would draw the line on the other side. I have no problem with that kick out. And remember, we just said in the first part of the podcast, there's tremendous competition for consumers. Like if you believe that the consumer experience is so superior that with an in-app purchase flow, then some enterprise and developer would build an app that uses an in-app purchase 
flow that's a better experience and they would get more consumers that way. Like I have no objection to Apple's in-app purchases. In fact, I'm not nearly as extreme as some people who think that Apple should have to open up their in-app purchase API so you can use different payment processors. No, I actually disagree. I think Apple is perfectly justified in having their own payment processor for their in-app purchases that's built deeply into the phone. It gives them a huge competitive advantage in this space because go back to games, for example, you go to Android. We'll use Android as a great counterexample. Why is Android different? Android is different in that they do charge 30%, but they let you kick out to a web page if you prefer. So if you open up the Kindle app on Android, there is one of the tabs at the bottom says store. You click store. It is loading a web page. It's a web view. And you can click there. You click buy book and you go through the Amazon purchase flow. And then you click a tab over to read and your book's there. So it feels native, but it's absolutely using sort of a web view. But why does Google still make so much money in the Play Store? Well, the experience is so much more seamless if you're using this sort of in-app purchase API. And think about a game, for example. If you're in the middle of a game, you want to add some virtual money or you want to buy a dance or whatever it might be, you don't want to be kicked out to a web page and buy something and have to create a new account and go through all that sort of rigmarole. There's tremendous benefit that come from those in-app purchase APIs. And Google and Apple have earned the right to have that superior user experience because of all the innovation they put into the platform as a whole. And so I have no problem with them offering that. I think they would continue to make a whole bunch of money doing that. However, I think they should win on the merits. They should win and developers should use them and should pay the 30% tax because they're better, not because they made a rule. Yeah, I understand. I guess I would say that the distinction sounds reasonable when you and I are talking about what's digital content versus what's in-app functionality. I think actually figuring that out is probably harder. Like, is a dance in a game, is that uh, in-app functionality or digital content? You could make an app. I'm totally fine with pushing the line with two and three then. I mean, frankly, if an app wants to have their experiences, you open up the app and you're faced with go to a webpage and subscribe or whatever it might be. I have no problem with that. And frankly, I think a lot of those apps would fail because it's going to be a crappy experience. And you know what? That's fine. They should fail by virtue of being a crappy experience. What shouldn't happen is that businesses can't compete like alternative bookstores or alternative music stores, that they can't even compete because of rules Apple made around the app store. Again, a lot of the rules are legitimate. There's a legitimate reason to have one app store with no sideloading of apps. You know, obviously that's another way to get around this. If there were alternative app stores, then this wouldn't be an issue either. I'm actually totally fine with Apple having one app store. I do think there's tremendous benefit that comes from it. But with sort of great power and being the only way to install apps on the most important computer platform we've ever seen comes great responsibility. And to my mind, Apple is abusing that responsibility. If I'm downloading an app and the first way I come across that app is through the app store and not because I'm speaking to some developer and they're telling me, oh, guys, you can download this to consume. But if you want to watch videos or you want to buy music, you need to go to my website. If I'm coming to that experience in some other way than through the developer directly, it's from Apple. And then Apple's argument that they have the customer relationship and they are driving you to that app. I kind of buy that. And when you go from one to two to three, I see the rationale. Now, that's not to say that I don't see your argument. And if I was Spotify with my razor thin margins and someone came along and said, for you to get in-app subscriptions, you got to give up 30%. Yeah, I'd be pissed. But I kind of see it from Apple's perspective. I understand why they're doing it. I think it's reasonable that they charge 30% up front. And then I think if you agree with 30% up front, then it's like the line that I draw going down. Like, I don't know. I, I, no, I, they can charge 30% all along. The issue is the 
elimination of competition via rulemaking. That's the crux of the matter here. Apple can charge 30% with all their in-app purchase APIs. That's totally fine. But it's the fact that there is no competition allowed. And yes, Apple created the App Store. That's absolutely the case. But given the fact that there are billions of smartphones and hundreds of millions of iOS devices, like we can talk about the market share thing in a moment, but there's no question it's a massive market that frankly, you don't have a choice but to be on. And in what way is the App Store not a utility? It is a means to get apps onto a phone. And if someone created the sewer system or someone created the power plant, we have no issue thinking about that. They shouldn't be able to eliminate all competition by virtue of having created that. Why is this any different? The App Store is not Apple found the customer for you. If someone searches in the App Store for an app and gets it, then quite clearly they're doing it via the App Store because they have no choice but to do it via the App Store. To say that Apple somehow provided this tremendous benefit, I think think that's really twisting the reality of what's going on. I mean, I understand. If they were banning the apps, if they didn't do that, then I would get it. And I get your argument. I think we're probably going to go around in circles. But I think there's a point here which, stepping back, this is where this conversation got interesting to me because I found myself taking a leaf out of your book, which is when we talked about Microsoft and the antitrust case that was brought against Microsoft, and you made a really good argument that... Microsoft getting knocked off its perch was probably going to happen anyway. And I can't remember, we should link to which episode it was in that we talked about it because it was a really good conversation and you actually changed my mind. I thought the DOJ case had a big impact, but actually there's a really good case to be made that Microsoft was going to get knocked off anyway and Apple came along and did it. And for me, that's what I think is going to happen here. I don't think that this is an instance where there's regulatory interference needed or anything like that on the basis of a utility. We're looking at a company that if, according to what you're saying, is hampering developers in providing this experience, like if I'm a customer and I want to download an ebook on Amazon and I download the Kindle app and I can't figure out how to download one of the books inside the app, they are negatively hampering their experience. Now, combined with that, you have Apple for the first time ever stopping releasing the number of units of iPhones that they're selling and playing up this services narrative. And you're seeing the prices of the iPhones go up. And this feels to me like classic over-serving. The rate of innovation that's happening inside of the iPhone is decreasing while the prices are going up. They're probably not releasing the numbers of iPhones because the market's starting to get saturated. And naturally, if the prices are going up, they're starting to focus on their best customers. Like they're moving up market. They're leaving more and more gaps exposed at the bottom end. And I just can't help but feel like Apple's setting itself up here really to get disrupted, but let the market do its thing. I don't think we need someone to come in and start interfering. Jobs has this famous quote talking about how I set out to make the best products and the profits followed. And he talked about John Scully's tenure at Apple and how Scully flipped those priorities to profits first and then products and how Apple completely lost its way and ended up almost dying. And that Jobs saved the company by flipping those priorities back. I feel like this is an instance where Apple's losing its way, but let the market do its thing. I don't think you need to come in. The idea that iOS is this massive monopoly and you can't get the same thing on Android, I don't think it's necessary. There's a lot there. This is certainly the idea that Apple's strategy has been predicated on sort of getting more money for its best customers. We've talked about this previously. I wrote about it earlier this year in an article called Apple's Middle Age. And the idea being, you know, they sort of have a three-pronged attack. One, charge more for the devices that they're already selling. 
to sell more devices to the same users. So it might be AirPods, might be HomePods, all those sorts of things. And three is this sort of services narrative, which is the idea of getting ongoing revenue from folks along the way. And I do think that lends itself to an over-serving argument. And you, with the price raises of the phone, some folks are like, well, you know, the component costs have gone up a lot. I mean, the over-serving argument is that you start creating these exotic features that most people don't really need and charging them a lot more prices for it. Like that very much fits the framework that you're talking about. I guess the main pushback I would have is this specifically. One, I would argue what Apple is doing with digital goods. And I would define digital goods as an independent market that is breeding all kinds of businesses from newspapers to music companies to podcasts to we've talked about it a ton. This is quite clearly the future to have these entirely new kinds of businesses that were not possible previously. And I think it's absolutely a very distinct market from smartphones. Like I am in the digital goods market. So maybe I should put a, you know, I've probably inherently biased up here, but I'm in the digital goods market. Are you saying that I'm competing with iPhones? Like, no, that's quite obviously not true. And what I would say the way that Apple is leveraging its iPhone. And again, Apple taking huge profits on the iPhone is totally fine. They earned it. They created iOS. iOS is exclusive to iPhones. I've talked in the past. It's kind of like a monopoly and that they have a monopoly on iOS. The only way to get it is by Apple hardware, but that's totally legitimate. That's good business. But to leverage that into saying we get 30% of eBooks is so egregious that it puts what Microsoft did to absolute shame. I mean, it is to me a far greater sort of attempt to leverage dominance in one area to another than we've seen in a very long time. What Apple does, their business, their innovation, all of which they deserve to be rewarded for, has nothing to do with me buying ebooks from Amazon. It just doesn't. And so I would draw that distinction there. One, it's way more egregious. And two, yes, you may be right, but what businesses are going to be harmed in the meantime? I mean, the great thing about what happened with Microsoft is all the innovation happened on top in the browser in a way that Microsoft wasn't even anticipating. Their attempts to control the browser and to control APIs was assuming that the browser was a runtime when it was actually an information sort of engine. And yes, there is debate about would Apple have locked down Internet Explorer in a way that made those applications unviable, but that was counteracted by the fact that Windows was open. You could always install another browser. There is no openness to relieve the pressure of what Apple is doing here. And you know, another example I take is Steam. They brought it up. Like Steam charges 30% and they have all these restrictions and you have to have your app in there. But that works because where you install Steam on your PC primarily, the developer can go around it and you can install it directly. The issue with the Apple sort of stack is there is no place to relieve pressure in a way that even a hint of openness in all these other examples, it does exist. I hear you. You compared it to Microsoft. Microsoft had 95% market share back then. And the extent to which you're considering Apple a monopoly, they have a monopoly on iOS devices. This is where the distinction matters though. Like this behavior is not necessarily because they're a monopoly. Like Anything involving price where you're artificially involving price, it doesn't necessarily need to be a monopoly situation. Leaving aside the fact that the Apple is nearly 50% in the US, which is certainly plenty large enough to initiate sort of monopoly sort of action. And these sort of actions come on sort of a national level anyway, not a global level. Actually, that's an interesting point that came up in our conversation, which is I didn't realize that monopolies could happen at local levels. So we talked about cities and you mentioned the example, if you roll up all the hospitals in a city, then that can be a monopoly and that can attract this kind of attention. I guess the question, though, is 
where is the harm? Like the US version of looking at monopoly, and I'm assuming this is with the view of like bringing some kind of regulatory action. There is not a supplier harm question. There's only a consumer harm question. Now, if I take a look at the apps that I get on iOS and how much I pay and what I get on Android and how much I pay, it's the same, isn't it? Yes. Well, first off, the harm, again, whether this would qualify for regulatory action or not, is one that should be very familiar to exponent listeners, which is all of the businesses and things that are not created by virtue of this tax existing. And this is a, an obvious point. You mentioned the Spotify example, like Spotify literally could not charge an equivalent price in their app as they do outside because they have to pay 55% or whatever the revenue to publishers or most ebook stores, they pay 80% out and they only keep 20%. If they went out and they ate that 30%, they would quite literally be losing 10% on every sale that they make. So there absolutely are businesses that quite directly today are not created and what businesses are not being created because it's not happening. Secondly, the issue here of fixing prices, fixing prices, it is an ipso facto antitrust violation. There are exceptions in antitrust law about what requires demonstrating outside harm and what is just clearly a violation. And to my mind, this is where the issue comes back to market definition. The response I think you were going for is, well, anyone can switch to Android. So there is sort of competition. But that's why I think it's important to suggest that the digital goods market is a smartphone market. I think it's conflating two things that are very, very different. These apps are on phones, not because of Apple innovation. It's because phones are one of the most important platforms there are in the world. And you have no choice but to be on it. And yeah, you mentioned my hospital analogy. We kind of brought it privately. Like your answer to a hospital monopoly in one city is that, well, if people don't like it, they should move to a different city. And the long term, the city will sort of decline and the hospital will start losing profits. And that'd be very tragic. And like, why don't we just fix the hospital monopoly? That is definitely one argument. But I think the reason that analogy doesn't hold is the reason I buy a smartphone is increasingly for the apps. I don't spend my time looking at the home screen. I don't spend my time on the phone making phone calls for the most part. And even if I did, the experience is actually very similar between them. The reason that I buy the phone is to use the apps and to extend the analogy back to the hospital. The reason that I moved to the city is for the healthcare. Now, if Apple's policies are making it such that it is developer unfriendly and that then flows into consumer harm, I'm going to switch to the place where whatever gives me the better app experience. Now, if these things are as critical as you say they are, and it is imperative to me and my experience to be able to buy Netflix in-app or to buy the Kindle books in-app, and like that's so detrimental to my experience such that I can't figure out how to go do it somewhere else. The Android device does it, but the Apple device doesn't. Apple's going to start to lose as a result of that. I get your point. I don't necessarily disagree with it. I think the issue, though, is you're not buying an iPhone because you get the privilege of paying Apple 30% on eBooks that you buy. You buy an iPhone for a whole host of reasons. Your point about that you believe apps on iOS are better is a good one. The question is, you know, who makes them better? Is it Apple with its APIs and its development environment? Is it developers? You know, we can certainly debate about that. But to say that the totality of why you buy a phone or don't buy a phone entitles Apple to 30% of a product in a transaction that they have absolutely nothing to do with, to me is, honestly, leaving aside the legal issue, I can't see any justification for it 
beyond the fact that they can. And that's why I called it rent-seeking. I know rent-seeking is a pretty loaded term in a way to use it in that you sort of know justifiable. It's just taking money because you can. But I honestly have a very hard time seeing any way in which Apple taking 30% of an ebook or whatever it might be is anything but rent-seeking. They're taking it because they can. And I think it's emphasized by the fact that no one else does it that way. I get it. I also see your argument. I do think your secondary point that if I can restate your argument and interrupt me if I'm wrong, that you believe what Apple is doing is justifiable, but it's deeply problematic in what it says about Apple sort of broadly. And to be clear, I think there's two things about one. You think it's justifiable in part because you think the market is going to fix it. For the record, I disagree with that. The market may fix it in the very, very long run, but I think the short-term, medium-term damage is very, very large. So I disagree with that in that it's worth acting on. But I think the secondary point implicit in that is that the market will have an opportunity corrected because this is inherently reading down a problematic road. I think that is something that I do sort of broadly agree with, if that makes sense. Yeah, this notion that they are compromising the experience in order to make more money is very un-Apple-like. And it is consistent with a pattern of behavior that's troubling about the company. I think they are setting themselves up to be disrupted. And you need developers on board Like, that's the reason we buy these phones. So we might disagree on whether they are justified or whether they should be able to do this, but they are doing it. And what are the ramifications of it? And I don't think we're going to go too far down the path where if they keep increasing prices, their install base comes down and it only takes one person to develop the killer app that falls in this third category that you've talked about and just be like, well, screw it. I'm not going to bring it to iOS because I don't want to pay this 30% tax and the flow is critical. And this is how how it starts to break. And this is how this flywheel and this level of defensibility that Apple has in its app ecosystem, which is a big part of the reason why people buy the iPhone, this is how it starts to break. They get greedy. They start prioritizing money over prioritizing great products. So I guess maybe I disagree with you a little less than I thought. (laughs) And what I mean is one I just don't think that's a realistic choice for developers. This isn't a niche market. This isn't a small market. It is, as I mentioned before, the most important computing environment in the history of the world or platform in the history of the world. Like if you want to build a business, you can't afford to be principled. You can't afford to wait for consumers to switch the next time their contract comes up, that they're going to go buy a different phone and abandon iMessage and abandon all the sort of other apps that they're used to just so they can get the one app. No, No developer can afford to do that. They will go on Apple on Apple's terms because their time horizon and incentives are very, very different. The incentive of a single developer in the App Store is different than Apple's incentives controlling the entire App Store. There's a fundamental mismatch there. And so I disagree that if you talk about the market fixing it, the developers, that's going to happen in the long run. I just don't think that's going to happen. But what I thought you were saying, and maybe you also think this, what concerns me about this is that the sort of mindset and approach and prioritization that comes from looking, how can we extract more money where money becomes a priority? Because quite clearly people having to figure out how to go to another website to subscribe to an app, because that app you know, is large enough and has a big enough brand like Kindle or Netflix that they can trust consumers will do that, or to be the small guy that may or may not succeed or fail, but they know they can't succeed with 30%, like that is hurting the user experience. By definition, the user experience is not at the absolute top of the priority list. And to me, that's the issue, is you mentioned the Steve Jobs quote before, and I think it's absolutely right that to the extent Apple, I think, is 
the brilliant product company that they are, it is by always putting that first. And yes, Apple has always come first and users second and everyone else is like a distant 10th, but that's always <laughs> been the case. But I think there's a balance and I worry that this balance is tipping in a problematic direction, particularly in this case, just because it's so egregious, right? We can talk about iPhones being more expensive and Apple doing more there. And frankly, you can make a strong argument that the iPhone should have been expensive for years, like that Apple has been leaving tons of money on the table. They're so important to people's lives and so essential. And Apple does such great things that they should have raised prices a long time ago. I'm totally amenable to that. And I can say, you know, it incentivizes Apple to make the product that much better, right? So leave aside the price rises. This bit about we're going to take 30% of a digital good that we have nothing to do with, it's so nakedly not about money. It's just about money. And when that mindset and approach starts becoming not just in the organization, which in the case is 2011, but particularly in the last sort of three years, I think it was January 2016, where the services narrative sort of started the first time that iPhone unit growth declined. I just worry about that. It has a corrosive effect. And this is all fuzzy. I don't have any economic articulation of this or why it's important, but I worry about a company where the leadership is very invested in and focused on driving this idea that we are good at services and we get money from services when the reality of services is the vast majority of it comes from the app store. And the thinking about services in the app store is part and parcel of let's extract money because we can. I absolutely agree. I think it's both and. I was saying, I do think it's a market fix and I understand you disagree. And so let's leave it there. But I definitely worry about what it says about the organization. And it feels that this services thing is in a very unapple like way. This has been Luca Maestri, the CFO, pushing this. And that is like the CFO has always been in the very much in the background of Apple, like that's the way it works. And now they're that addicted to the revenue that I'm not even sure that they're in a position where they're able to back down in pursuit of the user experience. And that's like a troubling place to be. That's the crux of the issue, right? Like they're committed now. Like there is no going back. Like there's a reason why you get five gigabytes of iCloud storage and it hasn't increased in years because that contributes to the services revenue, right? And they're the services narrative. And the, the app store is a huge thing. People are saying, oh, I'm sure Apple will listen to developers and realize they're hurting the ecosystem eventually. Like, no, <laughs> like one, they didn't listen to the ecosystem when the iPhone was growing from 2011 to 2016. And now it's even less likely and to the extent that they have made adjustments to things like lowering subscription revenue to like 15% for one year. The scuttlebutt is that that was because they were going to lose customers like Netflix. It was like, the only way we're going to keep this is if you back down. And that, again... The motivation is a nuts and bolts, dollars and cents sort of thinking. It's not driven by a consideration for the user. That's a secondary or a tertiary consideration. I love that Netflix example because it goes to what I was saying before a little bit, at least edges in that direction. You said earlier, this is all very fuzzy and you don't have strong economic data, but like this is the essence of disruption. It is this prioritization. This is what Jobs was talking about. This is what Clay Christensen talks about in disruption. Because they have become so committed to that number, they can't back down, even though someone in there might realize it's not the right thing to do. But the job now is not to deliver great products. It's always been now about delivering the numbers. And if they back down on this, they won't be able to deliver the numbers. Yeah, it's a great point. Like when you sort of lose control, like Apple, it's so funny because Apple is obsessed with control, right? They want to control everything. They want to control the most important things. And the concern about this sort of relying on the app store and relying on these sorts of policies for growth is they are losing control in a way that I'm not sure they quite fully appreciate. 
they're becoming the thing that they detest, which is they're losing control effectively to the public markets. They've always been the one that's resisted. And it's like, what's the great product? What's the great experience? And in this instance, it's what's the great set of numbers I deliver. And once you start getting hooked on that, you're in serious trouble. Yeah. But my point, I think it ties in because when they talk about we want control, it's usually been about product attributes, which makes sense when product attributes are top of mind. And it's funny that these sort of financial considerations are quite clearly increasingly top of mind. And I'm not sure how aware they are, the extent that they are sort of losing control in this aspect. I'm relatively amenable to the apps and in-app purchases. And and like I said, Google makes a lot of money in the Play Store because the in-app purchase experience using the built-in APIs is better. Like It is a better experience and it is justifiable to do that. I don't think it would take massive changes to sort of address this. But then you think about, you know, just how much money they do make on a company like Netflix. They were careful to emphasize this in the call that, oh, it's a very small percentage because there's the rumors about, you know, Netflix testing, taking out purchases completely. But you start multiplying that, it would probably be some sort of meaningful impact. But then again, maybe it wouldn't. And it just seems it'd be so much healthier, not just for sort of society broadly, because of I care about these sorts of businesses being built and face it, you have no choice but to be in the app store. But also, it feels like it'd be healthier for Apple to win on the merits, win by being better. Don't win because you made a rule. Yeah, that part, I absolutely agree. Well, good. We can leave aside our disagreement. We have come full circle. So it was good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's great to be back. Back again. We're not committed to doing sort of a weekly thing, but we never said we were going away either. No one believes what we say. Yeah, so it doesn't matter what we say then, right? Yes. So I will talk to you sooner rather than later, but not necessarily next week, but maybe next week. Sounds good, mate. I'll speak to you later. All right. Bye-bye.